Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. By following biblical principles, we are encouraged to soberly consider clear scriptural instructions for life's direction. When clear and specific instruction isn't available, we examine the decision, the subject, or the person in light of the fruit they have produced over time. I submit that ample clear instruction exists regarding perverted ideas like abortion. Conservatives and Republicans struggle with this matter in terms of moral reasoning, but they have no basis for such reasoning. I encourage such an one to provide a standard of truth for these struggles. Trust God, for the word of the Lord is right and all his works are done in truth. But I do understand conservative Republican and Christian are not the same. Considering that the word of God and loss of life are not enough to deter, I recommend abortion be examined based on its history and the fruit it produces. One cannot properly understand the historicity of abortion without first discussing the eugenics movement. The two go hand in hand and one is born of the other. Eugenics is defined the study of methods of improving genetic qualities by selective breeding especially as applied to human mating. Of course, the idea of selective improvement is subjective and therefore relative to the eugenicist. Eugenics has been practiced in many ways by many groups over the years and at face value appears to be a credible discipline of study. Oddly, eugenicists presuppose themselves included in selections made to improve society. (laughs) As a result of its roots in societal improvement through selective breeding as though people were animals, it's often hailed as the solution to social troubles. Through their efforts, eugenicists made a discovery, a common theme running throughout mankind. Man that is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. Their particular discipline aims to determine the source of such troubles and eradicate it from man. They disregard the scriptures, which clearly say, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, 
And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. They conveniently missed that little link. Of course, anyone with a Bible already knew this. We also know the solution, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Eugenics was introduced into the world by a man named Sir Francis Galton. Sadly, it would be applied early on by the United States of America. Curiously, Galton was a cousin of Charles Darwin. It's interesting how usual suspects can often be found peddling death together. Therefore, it's no surprise eugenics is rooted in social Darwinism and, more often than not, connected with socialism and communism though America's constitutional republic did decide to try it out for a space of time. Eugenics would apply survival of the fittest to society. Unfortunately, the only natural aspect of selection was the subjective opinions of intellectuals. Their race or social status was never considered amongst the undesirables. In a series of essays called Essays in Eugenics, Galton explains how preventing the unfit from reproducing while facilitating the fit in reproduction would greatly benefit society's future advancements toward improvement. Of course, he gave himself the privilege of selecting who would be deemed fit, unfit, and he defines what advancement or improvement entailed. Eugenics, as a form of disciplined study, entered the market of ideas and pique the interest of intellectuals. History often notes a common trend, the ability of intellectuals to elevate evil amongst viable options. And so, spending time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing has dire consequences. Most, not all, but most would agree genocide is wrong and should never be practiced. But the execution of one race because they possess undesirable characteristics as seen by another race, for societal improvement, that's the scientific discipline known as eugenics. This idea is on par with terminology like (laughs) pro-choice. Adolf Hitler was an admirer of eugenics. The evils thereof would have its greatest implementation in Nazi Germany. Eugenics became popular around 1918, It would not find ardent opposition until G.K. Chesterton fought back through notable essays on the matter. In 1922, Chesterton wrote Eugenics and Other Evils, in which he warned against toying with such ideas. During this time, especially at the university level, eugenics began to be taught and advocated by intellectuals in the United States. The eugenics movement began to define what they determined to be the source of trouble in our world, thereby narrowing its focus. This led naturally to identifying disparities amongst the races, creating necessary profiles to justify defining the fit and the unfit on racial terms. Soon, the white intellectuals of that day concluded the Negro race was eugenically unfit and problematic to the advancement of society, just as Hitler had done in Nazi Germany with the Jews and Negroes. Their perceived need for action intensified when they discovered non-white races had much higher birth rates than that of the white races. 
At this point, battle plans were drawn and the war effort would be fought in the mother's womb. Left-leaning progressive intellectuals that promote these ideas would not allow the suggestion this is racism. They would explain the science of eugenics simply majors on an unfortunate aspect of natural selection, that being the destruction of unfavored races, as taught by Charles Darwin. The trouble is, eugenicists are making the selections. Then they lobby governments to carry out the destructions thereof. Another notable eugenics advocate was Margaret Sanger. She thoroughly believed eugenics was the solution to society's woes. She regarded birth control and abortion as great tools in the hands of eugenicists to accomplish their desired end. Sanger believed birth control would help prevent people groups she deemed unfit to reproduce from becoming pregnant in the first place. But should birth control fail, abortion would be the foolproof backup plan. If conception could not be controlled, it could then be aborted. Yet, before Sanger advocated for birth control and abortion, the U.S. tried its hand in forced sterilization. Under the consent of the Supreme Court, the opinion was written by Oliver Wendell Holmes, anyone deemed unfit by race or by characteristic, that is, feeble-minded, criminal, deformed, etc., would be forcibly sterilized. By 1931, 28 states had implemented laws regarding forced sterilization. Many of these laws would remain in place until the 1980s. The wave of popularity in favor of eugenics in America only began to turn in the 1940s when Nazi concentration camps came under the control of the U.S. military. The Nationalist Socialist German Workers' Party, also known as Nazis, fully implemented their form of eugenics without limitations. As we know, the result was devastating. Or at least we should know. In 2020 America, socialists have become comfortable at the top levels of our government. I wonder what will follow. Sanger would implement her eugenics aspirations by way of business that alleges to help plan for parenthood. Though executing the unborn child seems to be an odd plan. The organization's initial leadership backed the legalization of abortion to implement its eugenics process. Sanger and her organization were thoroughly convinced birth control and abortion as tools of the eugenics project would solve societal, social, political, and racial problems. These tools would also stop the fast-paced birth rate of races she deemed undesirable. Her first line of attack was the legalization of birth control measures. She believed the effectiveness of birth control was dependent upon the unfit masses being properly educated or persuaded of its usefulness. The U.S. had moved on. Such barbarous ideas as forced sterilization were fading away. Therefore, she would convince the American population to sterilize themselves. Why force it upon the population when they will freely choose sterilization? A method to spread this necessary propaganda would be sex education in black ghettos and school classrooms. Eugenicists were equipped to educate these feeble masses in the necessity of birth control. 
Sanger took her campaign for birth control, or eugenics, where she felt it was most needed, the black communities. She opened a birth control clinic in Harlem and began what she called the Negro Project. In her writings, she was open about the fact she believed black communities to be the greatest problem in the South. And so it was, she set out to solve this perceived problem by implementing birth control measures in hopes over time this race might cease to exist. She also enlisted what she identified as Southern Black Ministers to assist her with encouraging the Negro Project to be accepted by Black communities. As she prepared to take measures a step further through abortion, she seemed to debate with herself in her writings regarding the evils for which she was about to enter. She clearly understood the morbid consequences of abortion, but perseverance for her eugenic cause would win her over. With zeal, eugenicists wrote about this new tool called abortion, also known as infanticide by the mentally sane. They clearly understood the implications and played no such word games as are played in politics today. Eugenicists understood in the womb was a helpless child and accomplishing their racial goals might require that child's execution. Of course, As the popularity of eugenics began to wane, a change in terminology was in demand. The American Eugenics Society changed the name of its publication from Eugenics Quarterly to to Social Biology. Very subtle choice. Thus, planning parenthood became code for racial genocide, performed legally, of course. No different than Hitler, I suppose. Unfortunately, There will be no Nuremberg trials for these crimes against humanity. Still today, Sanger's organization carries on infanticide under the guise of family planning. Their foothold is found in claiming to provide reproductive health or (laughs) women's health services. Both are terms of obscurity purposely used to fend off criticism of their bloody deeds. While black communities have been disproportionately harmed by both birth control and abortion, the project has broadened to new unexpected heights. Rather than an implementation for eugenics purposes against a certain race, abortion has come to enable unbridled lust across them all. That which was meant to control the races, primarily the non-white races, has reached into homes never intended. We started with the idea that man is sinful and therefore full of trouble. This sinful nature is passed upon all men, an idea the eugenicists recognized but have failed to accept the source and solution. As a result, their attempts to play God by controlling the aspects of society they believed responsible for the woes enhanced the sexual appetites of the masses. Men can now prey on women And women can use men in morally deficient ways, knowing the human life created in the process will be avoided through birth control or terminated through abortion. Rather than accelerating eugenicists' subjective chosen people fit for survival, they have opened the floodgates for any member of society to live out destructive lifestyles. A tool of eugenics hope to improve society has in reality facilitated sexual perversion 
and legal infanticide. Someday, God will come and resolve society's troubles. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The term wanton is defined by the Webster 1828 Dictionary accordingly. Wandering from moral rectitude, licentious, dissolute, indulging in sensuality without restraint, as men have grown wanton by prosperity. It is an understatement to say abortion raises strong feelings as well as major moral concerns. Unfortunately, in wanton cultures, feelings tend to supersede moral concerns. Lack of rectitude exists in proportion to our country's inadequate relationship with God. Furthermore, our culture's relevant moral decline continues as God and man travel in opposite directions. I understand there will be resistance to the idea of invoking a relationship with God as playing a role in the moral character of our culture. But that resistance proves the point. People are reluctant to submit to external sources of moral authority, even if that external authority is the creator himself. Thus, a moral God with expectations of righteous living thereby makes himself illegitimate in the minds of a people wholly given to lust. Why would a wanton culture consult a holy God? 61,768,124 abortions since Roe versus Wade prove they don't consult him and believe they have no need. Modern culture demands to know what right God has to tell them how to organize their lives. Furthermore, Modern man can hide their barbaric mentality by making sin appear beautiful and even heroic. Regardless of the process of beautification, willing ignorance by a wanton society is required for these practices to consist. Of course, as Christians, we know a child in the womb is human life. As a result, we have no right to murder, terminate, or abort that life. Genesis 25, 23 says, And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. The Lord is clear. The two in Rebekah's womb are people and nations. They are not undeserving life forms subject to arbitrary termination. They are alive in her womb and will play major roles in the future of humanity. Not only so, but the one would turn out to be a greater people than the other. And that was all right. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. God speaks to Jeremiah, the person formed in his mother's belly. God identifies this grown man as the very person who was knit together in his mother's womb. We are not entitled to separate the person at conception from the person after birth, which would seem sensible. Yet for the convenience of lust, sensibility is abandoned. In numerous passages, God considers people to exist upon conception. In the womb, the Lord has intimate knowledge of who we are and has plans for our future. 
only men and women lacking rectitude sacrifice living souls at the altar of convenience. Typical arguments in favor of abortion center around cases of incest and rape. This idea, at first glance, seems reasonable in the eyes of most people. The trouble is, of the millions of abortions performed, less than 1% involve cases of incest and rape. Making clear, morally deficient women have used society's compassion to advantage their lascivious lifestyles. Recent social media posts online display a young woman. We will be careful not to mislabel her a lady. But this young woman was excited to provide video documentary of her most recent abortion. She is seen excited for the day's events, ridiculing other women in the abortion mill who appear sad about their situation. Thus the idea that abortion exists as a humane response to hardships such as rape and incest is subverted through unbridled use by libidinous women. Furthermore, the use of medical tools, which resemble vacuums used to remove dirt from a car floorboard, further makes their case suspect. Despite such blatant abuses, it's clear abortion has become a sort of inalienable right rather than an emergency act performed under certain conditions. Wanton cultures provide abortions on demand as an antidote for the consequences of lascivious living. In these cases, the people involved relegate themselves to the relationship cues of animals. Thus, any form of discontent or inconvenience provides them personal consent to terminate the life of a child. No matter the level of self-indulgence, the loss of human life is not reason enough for constraint, not when a moment of pleasure is to be had. Inconvenience has become a lethal weapon, a threat to human life. Thus, our aim <laughs> never become an inconvenience. Americans have become subject to terminology by way of propaganda. Individual thought is an inconvenience, and we know what happens to that which is inconvenient. The demand for rights seems to spread like a pandemic disease. What started under the guise of help for women facing unbelievable difficulty has resulted in liberating unbridled lust. It's frightening to consider the lengths people will go to retain unrestrained rights. Until now, the resurrection of thought doesn't seem to be an option. My heart is troubled. People who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness and have the legal right to do so with little restriction. Life is full of choices, some difficult, some easy, and some should never exist. Yet breakdowns concerning rectitude place evil amongst viable options. As a result of this breakdown, large portions of American society exhibit no moral principle, virtue, or decency. So much so, they have become openly and shamelessly immoral. Recent events bear out this fact allowing us to examine the mentality of evil. Abortion and the emotions it stirs flared again recently. Due to high-profile cases before the Supreme Court, 
Rallies for and against abortion were held in our nation's capital. Of course, as a Bible-believing Christian, I naturally have a pro-life bias. For me, this is not a political affiliation, but rather an attempt to align myself with God's word. To state it plainly, abortion is an ungodly practice Christians should never stand for. It exists as a solution to particular consequential inconveniences. That is, it's inconvenient to exercise self-control and it's inconvenient to be left with the inevitable result. Sexual exploits are more important than the babies they produce. Abortion has become the fireproof backup plan when life is generated by brief moments of pleasure. The natural opposite of being dubbed pro-life is what would be called pro-choice, which is odd terminology on several levels. For example, it seems mildly odd to scream uncontrollably about being pro-choice while denying unborn children a choice in the matter. It's curious to me how people who escaped the womb now advocate on behalf of fetal killing squads. Also, if choice is the desired outcome, why not choose to remain dressed? Choosing sexual responsibility or sexual inactivity are far more reasonable choices to make. Women that chose abortion had the right to reasonable choices long before abortion ever became an option. Yet knowing the consequences, they chose to proceed in the wrong direction. Now society is expected to allow the execution of children by way of irresponsible living to continue. The pro-choice rally enthusiastically exalted abortion as an accomplishment. Furthermore, certain of them graphically detailed how aborting a child led to a successful career. Choices. Who knew? Abort a child or abort success. The lewd woman horrifically shrieked about her beautiful office, her talk show, her hybrid car, and her beautiful home. She explained the source of her success was due to the abortion of a child, or at least her ability to have an abortion prevented the hindering nuisance that is human life. This deviant path to success started when she was 15 years old. Her dissolute mentality gives insight into the condition of our country. The short-sighted, pleasure-focused, empty mindset of many of its members is alarming. This woman's frame of mind is best defined as evil, a way of thinking she is proud of. But, evil or not, at least it comes with a hybrid car. Consider her description of the situation. Termination of life thrust her into success. I wonder in what other areas of life it's acceptable to execute someone for personal success. Her path to accomplishment required removing anything or anyone that might slow or hinder her achievement. In this case, as a 15-year-old girl, she had enough lustful desire and self-interest to understand her chances at personal gain increased if her child's existence ceased. According to this reasoning, promotions in the workplace will become easier. Just execute the competition. This woman's loathsome mindset exemplifies her laziness as well. 
She made a conscious decision to refuse motherly responsibility as it required extra effort on her part. And not only so, but she also made the ridiculous false assumption mothers are incapable of successful careers. It never occurred to her many loving mothers are unbelievably successful in careers that actually (laughs) matter. No doubt she would struggle with this concept since it requires character as well as allowing the child to live past conception. Yet as she shrieks loudly about her success by way of abortion, she failed to mention she does not make the list of even B-rated actresses. Also, the talk show for which she boasted of success is canceled. If I mention her name here, those of you who are more worldly-minded would probably struggle to recognize her. I suppose I'm having a hard time seeing what success she gained. She is an irrelevant actress in Hollywood. Maybe from here she could be used to keep casting couches warm for the real actresses who sell themselves enough to become relevant. The levels of sinful activity here could be endlessly examined. First, that a teenage girl is engaged in sexual activity and making choices to abort children is appalling. Who engaged in this activity with her? Was it another teenager? Or was this statutory rape by way of adult sexual activity with a minor? Where were her parents? And why had they so failed to be involved in the decisions of their teenage daughter? What vile clinic allowed a teenager to enter pregnantly and leave having slain the child in her womb? The levels of depravity involved in this situation are immense. I'm not certain where we go from here. I suppose evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. In this case, and the many like it, the blind have led the blind, and they have become comfortable with degenerate lifestyles. But on the bright side, it could potentially come with a canceled talk show. The elevated emotional debate regarding abortion is manifestation of deeper problems. This is not a political issue. This is a moral problem plaguing a godless society. Deficient character and pleasure-seeking individuals turned abortion into a billion-dollar industry. Supply and demand. Enough evil must exist to maintain the need for supply. Unfortunately, the demand is high. People live under the pretense that man was born for happiness. Thus, their lives are increasingly shallow. The most civilized of nations are proving to be civilly barbaric. We keep hearing, follow the science or listen to the experts. That is, subject yourself to an elite class of intellectuals who will determine the limits by which you may live. If expert intellectuals decide eugenics is the game plan, (laughs) pray they do not find your race your class, your gender, or your religion undesirable. If convenience is their dominating thought, one better not somehow become an inconvenience. Boundaries, whether physical, moral, or intellectual, require diligent maintenance. Again, the Bible says in Proverbs 4.23, Keep thy heart with all diligence. 
deeper out of it are the issues of life. We live in a time when taboo is seen as heroic and cutting edge. The trouble is no longer a question of morality, but rather painting the depths of immorality as somehow beautiful. Thus our society drowns itself in fleeting pleasures. And why not? The consequences thereof have been at least superficially removed. Actors, singers, news media anchors, and intellectuals have become our oppressors. Essentially, they dictate our way of life, and the more corrupt they are, the more corrupt we become. Ideas have severe consequences. Tens of millions of dead babies prove it so. Thank you for listening, and God bless. hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.